Thank you, Ryan, and Lauren, and my old dear friend, Gary Clark. Um, anytime I have a chance to come here, anytime they ask me to, I say yes. And it's not because of them. It's because of you. I really do uh, happy, I'm happy to reconnect with them, but uh, to meet um, artists emergent and established and to be part of this energy. Someone asked me today about interdisciplinary environments and um, whether or not they work. To be in the same room with um, visual artists and physicists and historians, um, if you are, if you're living the life of the mind, it's, it's definitely going to feed you in some way or fashion. Um, I'm going to mostly read from uh, Leaving Saturn. And I'm going to start off with a poem here that um, I am two years into marriage and my second marriage. But prior to that, I, was on, I did about a season's worth of online dating. And it was a lesson um, in patience and um, and as you can imagine, uh, it just was fodder for the imagination. So I just could not help but um, write this poem. And it's for Ryan, because he encouraged me. I read, I read this poem quite a bit, and it was a crowd favorite. And then I stopped doing a crowd favorite thing. But I'm going to read it. Um, I should make some disclaimers about it. One, um, this was a poem in which... Uh, I was teaching the Fluxus artist, in particular a Fluxus poet named Jackson McLow. And he is a poet that uh, has, works by way of procedures. And so you'll hear my procedure uh, here. Um, it's called OK Cupid. And one more thing, I promise this is the longest introduction to a poem. Um, if you, this was a poem that was meant to be fun. So if you occupy a subjective space in here and you think it's you, it's not you. The, the poem is a, is a construction, okay? All right. Okay, keep it. Dating a Catholic is like dating a tribe. And dating a tribe is like dating a nation. And dating a nation is like dating a football star. And dating a football star is like dating a new car. And dating a new car is like dating an air freshener. And dating an air freshener is like dating a fake tree. And dating a fake tree is like dating silver tinsel. And dating silver tinsel is like dating a holiday. And dating a holiday is like dating a black man. And dating a black man is like dating a top. And dating a top is like dating a bottom. And dating a bottom is like dating a Tibetan. And dating a Tibetan is like dating a dragon. And dating a dragon is like dating a fireplace. And dating a fireplace is like dating a mantle. And dating a mantle is like dating a picture frame. And dating a picture frame is like dating Martin Luther King with Jesus. And dating Martin Luther King with Jesus is like dating a threesome. And dating a threesome is like dating a commune. And dating a commune is like dating 
an unachievable idea. And dating an idea is like dating the enlightenment. And dating the enlightenment is like dating science. And dating science is like dating a beaker. And dating a beaker is like dating a pharmacy. And dating a pharmacy is like dating a dealer. And dating a dealer is like dating a supply chain. And dating a supply chain is like dating a Republican. <laughs> and dating a Republican is like dating Winter. And dating Winter is like dating Demeter. And dating Demeter is like dating corn. And dating corn is like dating pancakes. And dating pancakes is like dating an orgasm. And dating an orgasm is like dating utopia. And dating utopia is like dating an Amish woman. And dating an Amish woman is like dating a Luddite. And dating a Luddite is like dating a folk hero. And dating a folk hero is like dating Robert Zimmerman. And dating Robert Zimmerman is like dating history. And dating history is like dating a white man. And dating a white man is like dating insecurity. And dating insecurity is like dating a Hummer. <laughs> and dating a Hummer is like dating the Pentagon. And dating the Pentagon is like dating a lost star. And dating a lost star is like dating a liberal. And dating a liberal is like dating a lamp. And dating a lamp is like dating a blonde. And dating a blonde is like dating a Swede. And dating a Swede is like dating Ikea. <laughs> and dating Ikea is like dating Whole Foods. And dating Whole Foods is like dating a yoga instructor. I did. <laughs> and dating a yoga instructor is like dating an e-reader. And dating an e-reader is like dating a television. And dating a television is like dating a commercial. And dating a commercial is like dating a serial killer. And dating a serial killer is like dating Raskolnikov. And dating Raskolnikov is like dating a rationalist. And dating a rationalist is like dating an academic. And dating an academic is like dating a CV. And dating a CV is like dating a white woman. And dating a white woman is like dating a refugee. And dating a refugee is like dating a Cuban. And dating a Cuban is like dating a propane flame. <laughs> and dating a propane flame is like dating a topless jihadist. And dating a jihadist is like dating a femme fatale. And dating a femme fatale is like dating Paris Hilton. And dating Paris Hilton is like dating a tabloid. And dating a tabloid is like dating a communist. And dating a communist is like dating a cut flowers. And dating cut flowers is like dating infidelity. And dating infidelity is like dating a pool. Okay, that is...
probably as funny as it gets. Um, last night, we were talking about, um, to no one's surprise but my own, uh, Burning Man came up in a conversation. And I have to say that this is um, a poem that uh, there's, a, there's a moment in this poem, it's, it was a New York Times article that I read years ago um, that told the story of this guy Thomas Yelk who was publicly uh, euthanized by Kevorkian. And for many years um, I thought, well, in the, to the question, do you have any last words? Um, and this was the one that was televised on ABC. He said, I never understood a thing. I never understood a thing. Thinking of our shame at the gas pump. After nights of strobe lights, spinning, hollow, festive moods. After listening to the vast embroidery of our loneliness at Vagabond or the G Lounge. After pursuing a private pain, mornings on subways heading home as I read Russian history and pretended to walk among a grove of winter trees hoping to elude the snarling mangy dogs roaming the streets between Gerard and Fairmount. I let two kinds of time pass through me and shunned the dying madness of corners, idling cars exchanging Franklins and Jacksons for delicious bags of cocaine, as if all noses were Bolsheviks turned peasants. A correct, if a correct revolution of minds had come, I was ready to banish all evidence of myself, to escape the bright spores of shell-top Adidas hanging like testes over power lines. I now find myself unable to stare across two islands of gas pumps and advertisements for big gulps at my neighbor's shame, the big whooshing wind of petrol cleansing us like a complex pattern of synthesizers and drum machines, a composed miracle from the saints of progress and commerce. When we pray, our hands carry the scent of gasoline, which confuse our brain's God spot, like the brutally noble monks who publicly claimed their end and set themselves aflame in protest, an act replicated in Linklater's film Waking Life. Also, my dream, that irascible man sanctimoniously reasoning society's craving for chaos and destruction before dousing himself with a devil red gas can, then cross-legged on a street corner, lighting a match as though he were taking a bath of fire, his charred limbs collapsing into a heap of embers. To the question, do you have any last words before being euthanized by injection, the New York Times reported Thomas Yoke as saying, I never understood a thing and then slumped, his head lolling to one side like a baby's except forever. I have friends each year who attend Burning Man 
in Black Rock Desert. They like having sex in the semi-arid Akali flats of northern Nevada, their bodies blurring to ashes like 40-foot wooden effigies in the swirling dust, eddying up and marrying to the vast ritual of ruin and devastation we seem to have made. Such public performances, such dissent, our flailing in discotheques, the bonfire we make of our bodies is, sure, the irrepressible blaze of the human. But I read, too, all desire for meaning abandoned as the flames flare around us, the startling conclusion of our perpetual obliviousness. The islands where we refuel offer temporary clarity. Hose, hole, cap, and go. The shame we all know is we all leave empty. <clears throat> so, um, I've, I've lived in Vermont for over a decade now and um, I'm just starting to write. It's just starting to get into my, my poems. This is called Enchanters of Addison County. And there's a, if you drive, ever driven along 22A, there's a, there's a number of general stores, but one of them is my favorite. It's just outside of Middlebury. We were more than gestural, close listening, the scent of manure riding its waft on the leaves off Route 22A. By nightfall, our gaze flecked like loon cries, but no one was up for turnips nor other roots, not least of which the clergy. Romanticism has its detractors, which is why we lined the road with tea-lit luminaries and fresh-cut lemons. We called it making magic, then stormed the corners and porches of general stores, kissing whenever cars idled at four-way stop signs or sought grade-A maple syrup in tin containers with painted scenes of horse-drawn farmers plowing through snow. The silhouetted, rusted farm equipment gave us the laid-back heaven we so often wished, and fireflies bequeathed earth stars, such blink and blank and bunk-a-bunk bunk. And of course we wondered if we existed. And also, too, the cows in the ancient pastures and the white milk inside our heads like church spires and ice cream cones. Even after all that cha-cha-cha, we still came up out of swimming holes, shivering our hearts out. Um, my wife lives in Florida, and I live in Vermont, and um, I had no respect for Florida since the election of 2000. Uh, that was the year of the Chad, and, um, but since we've become together, I'm, I love Florida. And uh, this is called On Cocoa Beach. I am revisiting the idea of Florida, giving my 
vertebrae, a vacation from all the faded bouquets of urine in New York and the darkened policies of snow in Vermont. I'm revisiting the idea of my wife's imperial gaze. Her three cheese quiche and fluted mimosas are the masters of my mornings. I'm revisiting the idea of lawn furniture. By late afternoon on Sunday, my face blossoms like a passion of lilies as I admire the spectral grace of the sandhill crane or am caught lost thinking of Castillo de San Marcos or the first people Temaqua. I'm revisiting the idea of light and laughter and skin half transported by wind. I like to think of myself beside the crepe myrtle pondering the logos of palm leaves and the kindnesses of beaches. You can have your sororities of pain and darkened subways. I will give myself to the great battles of clouds and surf. My friend Terence Hayes created this form called a golden shovel, um, which takes the lines of Gwendolyn Brooks, and you have to make use those lines going down the vertical right-hand side of the page. But um, I'm a big fan of Gwendolyn Brooks. I, in my second book, I wrote a 75-page letter to her. Um, so being the competitive person I am, I decided to write a double, kes kes a double golden shovel in which the left side also makes, takes a line, and it's from um, Robert Hayden. So Robert Hayden's on the left, Gwendolyn Brooks on the right, and their lines are America as much a problem in metaphysics as it is a nation, earthly entity, an iota, in our galaxy, an organism. And Gwendolyn Brooks says, we do not want them to have less, but it is only natural that we should think we have not enough. Stand your ground. America, how often I have applauded your flagpoles. We, as citizens, struggle to find common ground, yet do much to damage the planks of your art, not a soft tune we make, glissando of the harmonize. We have a want problem, more of ourselves problem, us versus them in the great race to prosperity. In his introduction to metaphysics, Heidegger asks, why are there beings at all? We have, as guides, clansmen, eugenicists who proclaim all others are less. It is, I admit, the slapping of your ropes, toiling a perfect union, but is the measure of your worth a silent cling elsewhere? How is it a ripple also runs through me when your wind rises? Your cloth is nation, hauled down or half mass like a deferred dream, only earthly because we strive on a path hidden by dead leaves, a natural entity whose death makes valid its rebirth. That an angry man can shoot a teenager is par, as we say. We, iota, deltas, crypts, knights, 
new tribesmen and new codes should in earnest put away our swords and talk shows. Think, our watermelons have so many seeds. And we, galaxy and us, dissolve our supernovas. The mysteries we have, an unmitigated burning of sound and fury, not organism of one but organs. America, I've had enough. Okay, this is from my very first book. Someone said it's bad juju if you don't read from your other books, if you have more than one. So um, I had a guy in my neighborhood named Steve who used to walk around like he was driving a car. And um, I used to like reading this poem because I would never know who grew up in Philly and remember this guy. And they would, sometimes they would come up and let me know. But this guy was, was, um, he was, he was something else, man. You could see this guy in all kinds of weather, just. <laughs> and in my neighborhood, guys would ask him what kind of car he was driving. And girls would ask him for a ride, to which he would pretend to back up, park the car and get out like a gentleman, and open the door. And no one ever went with him. No one got in. Some kind of crazy. It doesn't matter if you can't see Steve's Corvette, turquoise-colored, plush purple seats, gold trim rims that make little stars in your eyes as if the sun is kissing, kneeling at the edge of sanity, like a Baptist preacher stroking the dark underside of God's wet tongue, he can make you believe it's there. His scuffed wingtips, ragged as a mop, shuffling concrete, could be 10-inch firestone wheels. His vocal cords fake an eight-cylinder engine that wags like a dog's tail as he shifts gears. Imagine Steve moonstruck, cool, turning right onto Ridge Avenue, arms forming arcs, his hands a set of stiff C's overthrowing each other's rule, his life, body, and head snapping back, pushing a stick shift into fourth, whizzing past Uncle Sam's pawn shop, past the stop and go, only he knows his destination, his limits. Can you see him? Imagine Steve, moonstruck, cool, parallel parking between a pacer and a pinto. Obviously the most hip, backing up, head over right shoulder, one hand spinning as if polishing a dream. And there's Tina, wanting to know what makes a boy tick, wanting a one-way trip to the stars. We, the faithful, never call him crazy, crack-brained, just a little touched. It's all he ever wants, a car, a girl, a community of believers. It's true, my grandparents used to, somebody didn't act right, they wouldn't call him crazy. They just touched, you know, just touched. This is called blunts. Y'all know what that is? No, some people don't know. Raise your hand, you know what a blunt is. 
Oh, we good. We good. If you don't know, ask somebody. Ask a neighbor. You know. The first time I got high, I stood in a circle of boys at 23rd and Ridge, tucked inside a doorway that smelled of urine. It was March. The cold rains all but blurred our sight as we feigned sophistication, passing a bullet-shaped bottle of malt. Johnny Cash had a love for transcendental numbers and explained between puffs resembling little gasps of air. The link to all creation was the mathematician. Malik, the smartest of the crew, counter-argued and cited the holy life of prayer as a gateway to the Islamic faith that was for all intents the true path for the righteous black man. No one disputed. Malik cocked his head, pinched the joint, and pulled so hard we thought his lips crazy glued into stiff O's. It was long agreed that Lefty would inherit his father's used car business, thus destined for a life of wrecks. Then, amid a fit of coughing, I broke the silence. I want to be a poet. It was nearing dinner time. Jesus lived here. His sister was yelling at their siblings over the evening news and game shows. The stench of hot dogs and sauerkraut drifted down the dank hallway. A pre-spring wind flapped the plastic covering of a junk man's shopping cart as Eddie Hardrick licked left to right the thin strip of glue at the edge of a rolling paper, then uttered, so you want the tongue of God. I bent double in the blade of smoke and looked up for help. It was too late. We were tragically hip. Checking the time. Okay, uh, this is called Obad, and for the painters in the room, and Obad is a poetic form that is written. It's really a translation called Morning Song, uh, and many poets have written an Obad, and this is mine. You could be home, boiling a pot of tea as you sit on your terrace reading up on last night's soccer shot beneath a scarf of Ceres. You could be diving headlong into the waves of Cocoa Beach or teaching Mao Sing Tong whose theories are easy to reach or dropping off your dry cleaning, making the new Americans wealthier or mowing your lawn, greening up. But isn't this healthier? Just imagine the hours you're not squandering away, nor the ant-like minutes frittered with a tentative fiancé. Your whole body agrees. You'd rather lie here like a snail in my arms crook, nude and oblivious to all emails. Yes, it's nearly one o'clock, but we have more reasons to kiss, to engage in small talk, for one, these blissful seasons are never are short, and tomorrow is never insured. So, bounce downstairs, pour us glasses of whatever, a tray of crackers, bosh, pears, then let drop your sarong, the wind high on your skin, so we can test all day long the notion of original sin. 
And these uh, last few poems are uh, poems that take place in various uh, countries. Um, I'll read some poems from Italy and Kenya and Spain. Um, and then end with a poem, another poem. Um, <clears throat> yeah, the Augustan Suite for Derek Walcott. Cobble streets have the burnished look of stone skulls sinking like a necropolis of ungolinos from centuries of bewildered tourists stumped in the eternal city, mulling over which way to turn. Every ruin begets a selfie, like a Hollywood set directed to life, then ditched with each phone shutter click. Past the bronze facade of the Coliseum, ominous as a chip gold tooth, other crowds follow, like apostles, the voice of a guide, yawning and carrying her flag aloft like a cross. Even here, I look for a history of myself. In the Vatican's museum, I zoom close to art's record, frescoes, and altarpieces, and war with pilgrims for the best shot, studying the prose of a guidebook to explain Ezekiel's amphora, the slave boy delivering clothes to a nude Pollux, or why every Christ child craves the adoration of a black magi, shades frozen in a single hole. The crumbling stone beneath our feet speaks to us. Even Rome's dust possesses something of human grandeur, the elegance of decay. I envy the triumph that certain paintings give back my face. But Romanus Pontifex nearly sealed my fate. We have more hills to climb. From every gift shop, Papa waves at his blessed lambs. Two, one evening, someone will dream of Tuscany and see us walking along a narrow country road past Relay San Bruno, plum-littered, beside the north-facing slopes of vines like formations of green soldiers on their way to nowhere, a stray dog trotting ahead like Hecuba, who halts and impatiently looks back, checking our progress to San Biagio. If dreams are rumors, we are sliding into the light of prayer, practicing soliloquies of silence in our first year of marriage, our astonishment punctuated by those cypresses whose exclamations put a point to blessings. Off stage, if that sleeper should change pose and half undress herself of sheets, let her shift not break cataclysmic or lose sight of the stone-bright travertine walls, nor the hills rolling soft as her body, these ancient brick farmhouses, nor morning's rustic tinkling calls of sheep bells, the honeyed fortress of the city whose blush of red poppies in fields below collapses some tourist, our dreamer, into the arms of her husband, crushed by the view from Montepulciano nor the way she holds his hand against her chest, lost in a pasture of tiny dwellings whose faith repeats in capaniles that reach her deepest wells. Um, 
This is called Mighty Pawns, and actually this takes place in Philadelphia. There used to be a chess club, a middle, a middle school chess club, quite famous, so much so that a movie was made about them called um, The Mighty Pawns, but their names were called The Bad Bishops. And they were a group of young kids in North Philadelphia um, who would travel Europe beating all these uh, chess masters. And I happened to know one of them and thought about him uh, recently in writing this poem, The Mighty Pawns. What's the guy from um, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Not Will, not Will, the other guy? Carlton. He stars in that movie called The Mighty Pawns, if you're interested. If I told you Earl, the toughest kid on my block in North Philadelphia, bowleg and ominous, could beat any man or woman in 10 moves playing white, or that he traveled to Yugoslavia to frustrate the bearded masters at the Belgrade Chess Association, you think I was given to hyperbole. And if at dinner time I took you into the faint light of his Section 8 home, reeking of onions, liver, and gravy, his six little brothers fighting on a broken love seat for room in front of a cracked TV, one whose diaper sags, it's a wonder it hasn't fallen to his ankles, the walls behind doors exposing sheetrock, the perfect O of a handle, and the slats of stairs missing, where baby boy gets stuck trying to ascend to a dominion foreign to you and me, with its loud timbales and drums blasting down from the closed room of his cousin, whose mother stands on a corner on the other side of town all times of day and night, except when her check arrives at the beginning of the month. You'd get a better picture of Earl's ferocity after school on the board in Mr. Sherman's class, but not necessarily when he stands near you at a downtown bus stop in a jacket a size too small, hunching his shoulders around his ears. As you imagine the checkered squares of his poverty and anger, and pray he does not turn his gaze too long in your direction for fear he blames you and proceeds to take your queen. Okay, uh, last two poems. This is called... Um, why I write poetry. Because my son is as old as the stars, because I have no blessings, because I hold tangerines like orange tennis balls, because I sit alone and welcome morning across the unshaved jaws of my lawn, because the houses on my street sleep like turtles, because the proper weight of beauty was her eyes last night beneath my eyes, because the red goblet from which I drank made even water a Faustian toast. 
because radishes should be banned, little pellets that they are. Because someone says it's late and begins to rise from a chair. Because life is ordinary unless you plan and set in motion a war. Because I have not thanked enough. Because my lips moisten whenever I hear Mingus's goodbye pork pie hat. Because I said the word dumb fuck too many times in my life. Because I plant winter vegetables in July. Because I could say the morning died like candle wax and no one would question its truth. Because I relished being sent into the coat room in third grade where alone I would turn off the light and run my hands over my, over my classmates' coats as if playing tag with their bodies. Because once I shoplifted a pair of Hawaiian shorts and was caught at the gallery mall. Because suit reminds me of the warmth of my grandmother and old aunt. Because the long coast of my dreams is filled with saxophones and poems. Because somewhere someone is buying a Rolex or Piaget. Because I wish I could speak three different languages but have to settle for the language of business and commerce because I used to wear paisley shirts and herringbone sports jackets because I better get it in my soul. Because my grandfather loved clean syntax, cologne, Stacy Adams shoes, Irish tweed caps, and women, but not necessarily in that order. Because I think the elderly are sexy and the young are naive and brutish because a vision of trees comes to wise women and men who can fix old watches because I write with the pen whose supply of ink comes from the sea because gardens are fun to visit in the evenings when everyone has put away their coats and swords because I still do not eat corporate french fries because punctuation is my jury and the moon is my judge because parataxis is just another way of making ends meet. Because I have been on a steady diet of words since the age of three. And lastly, thank you, Gary, and thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Lord. This is on disappearing. I have not disappeared. The boulevard is full of my steps. The sky is full of my thinking. An archbishop prays for my soul, even though we met only once. And even then, he was busy waving at a congregation. The ticking clocks in Vermont sway back and forth as though sweeping up my eyes and my tattoos and my metaphors. And what comes up are the great paragraphs of dust, which also carry motes of my existence. I have not disappeared. My wife quivers inside a kiss. My pulse was given to her many times in many countries. The chunks of bread we dip in olive oil is communion with our ancestors who also have not disappeared. Their delicate songs I wear on my eyelids. Their smiles have given me freedom, which is a crater I keep falling in. When I bite into the two halves of an orange whose cross-section resembles my lungs, a delta of juices bursts down my chin and like magic 
makes me appear to those who think I've disappeared. It's too bad war makes people disappear like chess pieces and that prisons turn prisoners into movie endings. When I fade into the mountains on a forest trail, I still have not disappeared. Even though its green facade turns my arms and legs into branches of oak, it is then I belong to a southerly wind, which by now you have mistaken as me nodding back and forth like a Hasid in prayer or a mother who has just lost her son to gunfire in Detroit. I have not disappeared. In my children, I see my bulging face pressing further into the mysteries. In a library in Tucson, on a plain above Buenos Aires, on a field where nearby burns a controlled fire, I'm held by a professor, a general, and a photographer. One burns a finely wrapped cigar, then sniffs the scented pages of my books, scouring for the bitter smell of control. I hold him in my mind like a chalice. I have not disappeared. I swish the amber hue of lager on my tongue and ponder the drilling rigs in the Gulf of Alaska and all the oil-painted plovers. When we talk about limits, we disappear. In Jasper, Texas, you can disappear on a strip of gravel. I am a life in sacred language. Termites toil over a grave and my mind is a ravine of yesterdays. At a glance from across the room, I wear September on my face, which is eternal and does not disappear, even if you close your eyes once and for all, simultaneously, like two coffins. Thank you for your attention.